I'm Russ Porras, and this is 8-Track. Our guest today is an author and TV personality who you know from shows like Queer Eye and Chopped. And as you'll also find during this episode of the show, he's a huge music fan. Happy to welcome Ted Allen to the show. Hello. Hi, Russ. How are you? Uh, Very good, Ted. Thanks for doing this today. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. I love how, um, you know, we have what I consider to be a fairly easy ask, but at the same time, one that's pretty difficult is just posing to somebody, hey, give me eight songs for whatever particular reason that they hold meaning. And if that's a running thread or if that's a theme, however this is connected to you, you know, go. And as you and I have gone back and forth on this, just trying to settle on this list, you know, for you, it's actually much more difficult than, you know, the simple question. I totally agree. And I think there are a million different reasons why you could choose to talk about eight specific songs. I could definitely have given you a thousand uh, and it would have taken a lot of time. So I just started, you know, I just figured I had to start. uh, And I I think um, it evolved into something that might make some sort of cogent sense. Um, We'll see. (laughs) All right. So we're going to start out here with with Be Thankful for What You Got from Willem Duvon. And I think that's a really good place to start. So tell me about this song. Tell me why this is the beginning for you. Just Be Thankful for What You Got is, I think, a lovely song. It's a beautiful song. It's a very sultry soul groove. It's great musically. I think lyrically it's fun for me in a way because the whole premise of the song is to be satisfied with what you have while at the same time reminding us of the kinds of superficial things that we all want, like a really sweet ride. In this case, a big old Cadillac. Though you may not drive a great big Cadillac Against the white walls TV antennas in the back And in sort of doing some research into what some of that stuff meant, I've always loved the song and I've always wondered what is he talking about with Diamond in the Back? And now as it turns out, the Diamond in the Back actually is the TV antenna. Apparently back then the TV antennas in cars, if there were any, were diamond shaped. And that would be a pretty extravagant luxury to have in a car even to this day. Just be thankful for what you got Though you may not drive a great big Cadillac Diamond in the back, sunroof top Well, we all have them now, but we aren't necessarily watching, you know, sitcoms, at least I hope, uh, but just using them for navigation. But I don't know. It's 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 a classic. It's a real soul classic, and uh, I do think it's a great place to start. William Devon, by the way, is uh, still alive, and he's 74 years old, and uh, I'm pretty sure this is this is his biggest hit. Uh, he's always suffered the misconception that this song was by Curtis Mayfield. I'm sure he was as inspired by Curtis as most of us who love music were, but it's it's not Curtis Mayfield. It is indeed William Devon. Diamond in the back, sun top, digging the scene with a gangster lane. That was another line that I didn't really quite get originally, and I now know that a gangsta lean is maybe putting your left hand on the wheel and leaning out the 
passenger side so you can acknowledge all of the respect and admiration you're getting for your great big Cadillac. I thought it was just a bit about a skinny gangster. So, you know, this has been very educational for me. Yeah, see, this is what happens. You do a little research there. It's funny because it's just at the heart of it, you know, just the message in the song. If you take the lyrical content out, just the, the title itself just kind of reminds me of like my mother telling me to just like not complain about not having more than I did or something like that, where it just feels like somebody being so almost dismissive of like, no, 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 everything's fine. Just, you know, be grateful that you have something to eat or, you, you know, there's starving people in other countries kind of thing. Well, yeah, and you know, I was just talking last night with a guy who's a, mu- a curator at an art museum and he was talking about how insignificant he feels in the face of many terrible and important things that are happening in the world and I said to him I think what you do is every bit as important and I think what Russ Boris does is all you know this is a part of life that we can't let slip maybe more now more than ever so I'm glad we get to talk about something that means something to us that is not necessarily about something awful yeah, I think we do have a tendency as, as as humans to be almost dismissive of our own feelings at times where you just say, all right, well, it's fine. You know, I, somebody has it worse or, you know, you're almost downplaying or, or devaluing your own feelings in that sense. It's like, no, you, you can you can feel not so great about things. It's OK. Um, it's all right for everybody to feel that way at some point. So I appreciate the uh, the pep talk there. Thank you, Ted. Sure. <laughs> well, I also think that William Devon also was tapping into a certain wistfulness there, too, you know, and, and there's a thread of sadness in the song, but also sweetness and gratitude. And and, um, and you look, everybody aspires to to uh, succeed. So uh, it's all good. Your next choice is David Bowie. You could pick 100 songs from David Bowie. You chose Young Americans. I'm going to speculate that David Sanborn has something to do with this. <laughs> David Sanborn does have something to do with this. Uh, and, you know, this is a, a song from Bowie's ninth album, Young Americans, not an album that many people consider to be one of his greatest works, but nonetheless has some pretty cool stuff going on. What led me to it was this notion of soul and what is soul. And uh, Bowie obviously is appropriating from another culture when he does anything called soul. We pulled in just behind the bridge, he lays her down, he frowns, gee, my life's a funny thing. He had the humility to refer to his stab at soul as plastic soul, which is a level of self-deprecation you didn't always get from the thin white duke. David Sanborn plays amazing sax on this song and another important figure in soul music and all music in my opinion was uh, singing backup on this song the then little known luther vandross which i thought lent some pretty serious critical bona fides here and oh also this is this is the first bowie song ever to chart in the billboard top 40 it made it to 28 I've always loved the song, but a lot of people dismissed it. Bowie himself didn't even like the song Fame on this album, uh, with whom he collaborated with John Lennon, of course, and who is referenced obliquely inside uh, Young Americans as well. So I don't know. It's got some stuff going on for me. It 
it's never occurred to me before that Bowie just limited the definition of young to 20 or under, <laughs> which is kind of a buzzkill over here, but all right. I don't know how much air sacks you do, Ted, but um, you know that would certainly be appropriate. Sanborn leading the charge and Bowie, very cool. Iconic. President Nixon, do you remember the bills you have to pay for even yesterday? All right, so we move to Amy Mann, who's just an absolutely ridiculous songwriter and another artist that you could choose any number of songs for any number of reasons. So I'm curious a lot about Deathly. Well, this one, uh, Amy Mann hooked me immediately when I saw Magnolia, and the song is in that movie. Um, long ago and there's just the the song opens with an absolutely deadly piece of writing and that's what I love about it in particular and I probably ought to let her sing it now that I've met you would you object to never see each other Again. Ted, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for opening lines. And now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing each other again? I mean, that's that's just tremendous. Absolutely. And so much incredible verbal economy just happens in a devastating like nine words that just pretty much cuts you. And I've been a huge fan ever since. I mean, there's definitely songwriters that evoke a similar emotion from you in their music. You know, Amy's not one where I think you listen to and you necessarily feel happy, but I don't think that's a bad thing. There's definitely a lot of thought that comes from these songs. There's a lot of... Um, introspection. There's at times, you know, as you said, you're kind of being cut by the words. And I think that speaks to the strength of the writer for sure. Totally. And I also think, you know, Elton said it best. I mean, the sad songs are actually generally my favorite. My best, pr- highest praise for any artist, I think, is that if you can bring me to tears with a concert, the way so one band that did that to me was Lamb Chop which is a really odd band from Nashville. I, I tried to get them in here, but they're just too weird. Uh, uh, Kurt Wagner, incredible. I, they saw them at Bowery Ballroom and they brought me to tears about three times. And that's a, a emotion, the emotion that you can get in something that is usually sort of derided as a mere pop song, um, I think is actually pretty special. It almost feels more special than being the type of artist that, you know, is going to sell billions of records. I mean, if, if anybody even does that anymore, but just, you know, in terms of the, the level of notoriety. But if you can cut and speak to an individual on that level, there's some real talent to what you do. I agree.
I was just thinking about this song contrasted with the next one, which have a few things in common, but that Amy Mann line, I think, is just sort of cuts, whereas the next song we were going to talk about is really more like painted. You know, it's like painting with language, with exquisite detail and scene setting. They're two totally different sides of a similar coin in some ways. Yeah, I've always felt that, that Amy Mann writes in a way that there's nothing in there that doesn't belong in there in her mind or nothing that she doesn't want to be in there. Yeah. Um, and as you, you know, kind of teased right there, which you're doing great with the uh, forward promotion here, DJ style, you know, the artistry that is the work of Joni Mitchell is in a completely different way. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstances. There were two writers and performers that had just really didn't want to leave out of this conversation because they just mean too much to me, both in totally different styles, totally different ways, but um, with integrity and brilliance in common, for sure. Coyotes, um, similar problem of a puppy-like over-attentive, uh, maybe puppies are a little too harmless of an image, men bothering women for that reason that so many men do. Um, I think Amy issues uh, her rejection rather quickly. It makes it quite clear. Uh, Joni has to kind of work her way into it a little bit, but the end result is pretty much the same. Locals were up kicking and shaking on the floor. The next thing I know, that coyote's at my door. He pins me in a corner and he won't take no. Can you imagine trying to go toe-to-toe with Joni Mitchell in any way, let alone a romantic one? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's a big no. Graham Nash must have really been uh, quite a, a wordsmith in real life, as well as he is on the recorded song. But that would be formidable. Why'd you have to get so Leave me on that way. You just picked up a hitcher, a prisoner of the white lines on the freeway. And you throw in Jaco Pistorius, kind of bringing that into a different level from a musical standpoint. Okay, I didn't look that up, and I there has to be a reason why I liked a fretless bass for once, because I yeah. don't always. The bass line in that song is unbelievable, and so is, I assume it's Joni's use of the harmonics on the guitar. Yeah, she's playing acoustic and electric, and it's just a different feel. And a hawk was playing with him. Coyote was jumping straight up and making passes. And you know what I mean? How different it is from Amy's song in Joni's just incredible painterly way. Yeah. She just weaves a, a scene. You can't stop seeing it, the, the, driving past a burning house on your way to go dancing. I mean, it, it really is one of my all-time favorites. There's just a level of description that, you know, not all writers possess. You know, that doesn't make one necessarily better than another. It's just it's just a different way of the way they tell their stories. But hers are just so vivid that it's hard to not really hone in on that. And, you know, as we listen, you know, hear things differently or hear things that you hadn't heard before. Totally. Totally. That song's full of moments. Coyote's in the coffee shop. He's staring a hole in his scrambled eggs. He picks up my scent on his fingers while he's watching the waitress's legs. He's too far from the Bay of Funday. 
from Appaloosas and Eagles and Tides. He's staring a hole in his scrambled eggs. I was just going to say that. <laughs> staring a hole in his scrambled eggs. It's so good. And, and uh, this flame that you put here into this Eskimo speaking about herself. I mean, the writing is just, I can't. Now, I almost laugh. It's so good. Staring a hole in, in his scrambled eggs. I mean, yeah, people do that. This flame. You put her in this Eskimo hole. In this hitcher. In this prisoner. Of the fine white lines. Of the white lines on the free. All right, so I'm, I'm very curious about our next uh, choice here as we go to what was really a, you know, a, a pretty significant shift in the evolution, uh, in the early evolution of Wilco, the Summer Teeth record, and a song called She's a Jar. So talk to me about this one. Ah, uh, there's some darkness here that you might not see coming in the beginning. Um, you know, it opens with She's a Jar with a Heavy Lid, My Pop Quiz Kid, A Sleepy Kisser. A pretty war. She's a jar with a heavy lid. A pop quiz kid. A sleepy kisser. A pretty war with feelings hid. She begs me not to miss her. I mean, you feel like you feel like okay. Well, you know, this is a, a sleepy kisser. That's adorable. A pop quiz kid could also mean somebody who, when he comes home, barrages him with questions about where the hell you've been. She says forever to light a fuse We could use a handful of wheel And a day out and a bruise I think Jeff Tweedy writes a lot about the difficulties of relationships, which suggests to me that he might have had some difficulties, or maybe he's just really empathetic. Um, he's been married a long time, he's got kids, so he must be doing something right. But one thing he's definitely doing right for me is writing and performing. When I forget how to talk, I'll sing won't you please bring that flash to shine and turn my eyes red unless they close but when you click and my face gets sick stuck like a question unposed what is it about tweety's writing that specifically speaks to you well I, in a way in a very different way from Joni mitchell but in a way i think he's he's also kind of painterly and and makes references to things like you know a bruised road and, a, and his face getting sick and stuck like a question unposed. Um, super poetic, a super huge amount of range. And yeah, I think Summer Teeth was an album that that completely turned a corner for them, as you put it. Um, and they've continued turning corners and getting weirder and weirder and noisier. And uh, they've just got a lot a lot to say. They've remained really interesting. But this one was, I, I, that's why I went with this one, because I think for a lot of people it's going to be a, a familiar song. Please beware. But also a song that's got a lot of depth and a lot of darkness. And it's hard to know exactly what it's about. I, di I didn't say I was going to tell you that. Alright, so I think this is a good opportunity for us to talk about this idea of songwriters and the interpretation of the song. She's a jar from Wilco, leaving it up to, you know, the listener and leaving it up to the audience. And that, I guess, sort of age old question is like, is the song, you know, true to its meaning of its writer or its listener? She's a jar with a heavy lid, my pop quiz kid, 
It's a sleepy kiss or a pretty wall with feelings hid. You know she begs me not to hit her. For one thing, on this song in particular, the the whole song is evocative and paints a picture, not a simple picture, not an easy picture, not a rosy picture, but it sounds like there's some love there. And then it ends on a line, a devastating line like that. She begs me not to hit her. How are you supposed to feel about someone that's written that? You got to remind yourself that it's a song and not from real life, hopefully. Um, it's, it's, it's weighty. It's heavy. It's rough. There's nothing... There's no easy way out of that song. Um, it's so easy to get into it, to get out. He really hits you in the face with that last line. Like, it takes guts, or is it reckless, or is I don't know. It's but it sure makes you think. It's good art, you know, in that way. You know, good art is supposed to make you think. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of that song, you know, when he says we could use a handful of wheel and a day off, I know I, that that line hit me really nicely this time on this listening. Um, I can use that myself. It's definitely a well-spun story. I'm just not sure everything that it's about. So we've we've got some great writers, and uh, and I think that still you know sums up where we're going next because we have the work of Carl Newman and the New Pornographers, uh, which I think is a really fun choice here. This is actually a, the, the first time Ted and I met uh, a few years back because we had done a private show with um, with the New Pornographers at Rockwood Music Hall, and it was a really cool show and a really unique environment to see the band in such a small location. Um, so that was just a little bit of backstory, but I know you've been a fan of the bands for a really long time. So how did you come to choose this particular song of Falling Down the Stairs of Your Smile? Falling Down the Stairs of Your Smile is a song that Carl even met that night. Carl Newman, the, the guy who wrote the song, the leader of the band, uh, almost disparaged how odd that sounds to say that I'm, someone's falling down the stairs of your smile. It's a little bit, there's love in it, but there's confusion in it. And uh, I can't say I understand everything that's happening. <laughs> Which is fine. I've, I've, I've developed a tolerance for ambiguity. You know, I love a lot of things about the new pornographers, not the least of which is the fact that they're pinch on for doing call and response between Carl and Nico Case and Catherine Calder, and it's um, such a perfect example of a bunch of things coming together and creating something greater than the, the sum of its parts. Pornographers is a collection of people who were already quite well known on their own, and Dan Behar uh, of Destroyer fame, and I get the sense they never intended for the new pornographers to be their main thrust, and yet that band I think is bigger than, than any of those single entities that make it up. It's a special kind of collective. I just love smart writing, smart weird writing, that's nonetheless also I think super catchy. Everyone's always calling them power pop, and I, I don't think that's wrong. I do kind of wonder, though, how they feel about it. I've never asked. 
It's fun, it's danceable, it's catchy, but it's also super, super smart. Okay, so as we try to decipher the exact meaning behind falling down the stairs of your smile, we also have the album title, which is in the Morse code of brake lights. And it's just, it's just so great. It, no, I don't exactly know what either of those entirely means. And maybe that's okay. I think it's going to have to be okay. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, we could, we could write, we could complain to the label. We could, uh, you know, I don't know, stage a protest. It's just evocative and weird. And just sometimes I think a lot of artists come up with melodies first and then mouth, you know, mumbo jumbo sometimes, which makes it into the song. I'm thinking about um, Earth, Wind and Fire in September. There was a NPR had a wonderful story about that song and how other members of the band thought that Body Ah was just filler and Body Ah stayed in the song. All, and they, there were people who begged uh, the Phil, I think it was Philip Bailey to remove that uh, from the song. And he's like, no, nah, man, I dig it. So. <laughs> it works. It works. It's worked for a long time. Well, then you have the writings of somebody like David Byrne. And there are just, there are layers and the music builds in ways. You know, all those those Talking Heads records, which each freaking one of them is brilliant. It doesn't matter where you're going. So you went to Remain in Light. So obviously I'm curious about that. Uh, so we can talk about that or we can talk about The Great Curve. Either way, you, you tell me where you want to start with Talking Heads. Well, Remain in Light is my favorite Talking Heads album, and I love all of them. And I just love the, the polyphonic vibe that they built. I love all the funk. I love all the percussion. You know, for me, I always appreciate listening to a song, and at the end of it, just like, I'm tired. Because <laughs> I can imagine, like, how much effort it took to construct this and, you know, obviously we're hearing the finished product, but I, I'm, I would just be curious to hear, like, the number of conversations and hours that went into, you know, writing, arranging, producing, constructing a piece of music like that. It is wild. Mind-boggling. Mind and, you know, where did David Byrne begin and Eno end? And when, we were, when I was starting this project with you... I really kind of thought this song was really little more than a bop, that the that the lyrics weren't that important necessarily. And I'm still not sure they're all that important, but I did think, as, as I wrote to you, I always thought The Great Curve was a reference to a famous photograph of a woman's hip. And, and I could find no support for that theory at all, even though Byrne writes in this song, the world moves on a woman's hip, the world moves and it bounces and hops. I, so I still, I have no conclusion. I do definitely think it's bop. It's a great song. I've seen it live a few times, and it is even better that way. I've seen it live with Adrian Ballou playing that guitar solo. Oh, I can't even imagine that. Oh. Yeah, that's next level. Next level, totally. I mean, I could have picked any number of, of Talking Heads songs, too, but for some reason, this one just grabs me.
I did kind of get the conclusion listening to it this time that a lot of songs tell stories. This one doesn't really tell much of a story. I think the words are really there also to create more polyrhythms. It's really, that song is all about interlocking complex, you know, a huge band from the whole Stop Making Sense era, uh, that film. You know, yeah, okay, we're introducing you to a woman who's dancing and all the rest of it. It seems like the words are just in service of rhythm and then nothing wrong with that. As well put. Words in service of rhythm. I like that. I think that is right on. Thank you. I've listened to that song thousands of times. <laughs> you must. You, you have it down then. I pretty much. Yeah. All right. So we've uh, we've definitely woven a, a pretty amazing list of songs and gone in and out in a number of different directions uh, over the last seven songs of eight track, uh, and we we reached the end. You know, I like that at this point you could uh, you could express a little regret that it's the end, but I think this moves us ahead with hope and optimism and fun. I do my head toss, check my nails, baby. How you feeling? Talk to me about Lizzo. Yeah, you know, I think uh, this singer is somebody who's showing you what a great friend she is. She's empowering someone in her life or uh, anyone who might listen. She's a voice of women, of people of color, of people who are uh, varying sizes, and uh, such a wonderfully charismatic person. Similar, oddly, to Amy in a way, uh, in that that first few lines of hers, I do my hair toss, check my nails, is so evocative. You can just see that. Just those two little flecks of verbiage, you see someone asserting themselves and walking away from somebody who's a loser. Or any number of other occasions, and I just really admire that a lot. I mean, if you're not empowered, okay. I mean, that's what. But if you're not at least smiling with that, and, and I think you're just missing everything. Totally. And who doesn't need a? Uh, I, who doesn't want to be friends with Lizzo? She's got a bottle of tequila. She's been saving for you. <laughs> And certainly applies to so many people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about somebody who is relatable and real, and that is 100% Lizzo. So a a great choice to wrap up uh, your selections. Ted, this has been so much fun. Thank you for being our guest on 8-Track. Thank you for having me. Lots of fun. Feeling good as hell for sure here on 8-Track. Thank you, Lizzo. And thank you, Ted Allen. Next week, Friendship brings us the eight songs picked by actress and songwriter Maya Hawke. 
A-Track is engineered by Jim O'Hara and produced by Sarah Wardrop with theme music by Caroline Rose. Subscribe, listen, and learn more at 8trackpod.com. I'm Russ Boris for WFUV in New York. Thank you.